Virtually all of us are familiar with that sound. If you've watched any kind of medical show or been in an ER room yourself, you've heard that familiar beep, beep, beep. It's the ubiquitous sound of a surgery room. For wildlife veterinarian Dr. Karina Flores, it's much more. For her, it's the calming pulse that says everything in her surgery is and should be fine. Fine for patients that cannot explain the pain. Karina has to trust a mix of science, experience, and instinct to care for her patients. That mix has helped wild patients as varied as wild African dogs, fishers, cheetahs, and now rescued chimps here at Sierra Leone's Takagama Chimpanzee Sanctuary. Hi, I'm Jerry Ellis, and this is Talking Apes, where we are continuing our journey across Sierra Leone, talking to scientists and conservationists and passionate primate people working to save Sierra Leone's disappearing primates and their forest home. Talking Apes is the podcast that gets to the very heart of what's happening with and to apes like us. The Talking Apes podcast is made possible by generous support from listeners like you to nonprofit Globio at globio.org. Welcome to Talking Apes. Thank you so much, Jerry. Um, sorry, no, it's a no, pleasure. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, no, it's it's great. I'm glad we could finally sit down and do this. I have to be honest, we've been running around for a couple of weeks here, so it's not like you're brand new to us. <laughs> <laughs> we've been uh, yes. filming chimps, and we've been filming baby chimps and healthcare, and we'll get into all those things here in a few minutes. But mm-hmm. um, what I want to start with is, I wanted like, why Africa? You're you're originally from Mexico. Yes, I am, and um, yeah, actually, that's a very funny question because. Uh, just when I arrived to Sierra Leone at Lungi's airport, uh, a man asked me, why, why are you here? <laughs> why are you in Sierra Leone? You have, um, don't you have wildlife in your country? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, well, I, I, like to, I like to be here in Africa. And I have been other places in Africa, as you well mentioned. Um, I don't know. Like to, just getting back to your question, I think um, I have like this certain uh, excitement and attraction to Africa because maybe all of, all of the documentaries that I saw when I was um, a kid you know, and I saw all the elephants and giraffes uh, although I, it's funny because I have never been in like working with them <laughs> I have been working with other species here in Africa but yeah I don't know I have like certain um affection to it and attraction i guess a lot of people has that one you know has has this <laughs> and can relate to to this feeling yeah it has a, no i have the same thing i mean i was uh, when i started my filming career it was like to come to africa so no i understand completely what that this the appeal and and the draw to come here so it's it's not just something that you know it, it, I think it it affects a lot of people who are interested in Africa, but West Africa is a little bit different, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. Where I want to start, though, is with one of my favorite creatures in Africa. You worked in Namibia on wild dogs, yes. and for I know this is called talking apes, but we're the apes <laughs> that are doing the talking. And I, I really want to tell me about working with wild dogs as a vet. That sounds really cool because they're a very special creature. They're just not your normal canine type dog they are and um it's 
It's funny because in the beginning I wanted to work with cheetahs, and that's why I um, I, I connected with the with the organization that I was uh, working with, and then they just offered me to work with the African wild dogs. Uh, and what I did, um, I, I don't feel like I was working like as a vet person. I don't know why. Maybe I feel more like I was studying them. Uh, because I was doing my master's research uh, in Namibia with them. So what I was doing uh, was uh, recording their behaviors and um, analyzing their hierarchies. Uh, but we also took blood samples from them. We measured the antibodies um, in the serum because they have been through a vaccination schedule before. And there's quite a controversy in the vaccination uh, schedule for them. Uh, and that's why we wanted to see if if the one that we were trying actually worked or not. And we also checked their stools, a lot of stools from uh, the African wild dogs. And I found out that those are the worst stools to work with because they're so stinky. Oh, my God. And um, what what we found out was actually that, yes, indeed, it's it's a good protocol, the one that we were working with. And um, we didn't find much regarding the parasites because, um, unfortunately, uh, they were rescued dogs because um, they had been, um, at, well, the den, of course, the dens had been uh, attacked by humans and they were just rescued and we had them in semi-captivity conditions. So the the conditions were not um, as, as natural as as in the the wild. So I think most of my um, findings were related to that, to, to the conditions. But I think it's, it's, it was amazing because it, like working with them allowed me to, to learn about them. And as you say, they are fantastic creatures. And the more I read about them, also the more I fell in love with them and watching them playing and just communicating and they actually, um, of course, learned to, or got to know us and uh, recognized the, the car, the truck, and they ran uh, behind us and next to us. And they were really excited and they greeted us any, every time we came to, to see them and to put the cameras and everything. So, yeah, the, they are amazing. Yeah, they're really. So you mentioned vaccines. So what were you, was it for distemper, or what were you vaccinating? Yes, for? exactly for distemper. Yeah, because I know in other places, like in the Serengeti, it, it was uh, canine uh, distemper that killed the last of the of the painted dogs or wild dogs that were there. But mm-hmm. it, they're so resilient. They, I mean, in many places where they died off because of distemper, then you know, here 10, 15 years later, all of a sudden you start seeing them expand back into some of those ranges so. mm-hmm. yeah. yes and um also that's why that's why there's so much controversy because some types of vaccines have shown to cause actually the disease in them so some types of vaccines are banned and the others may have um like secondary effects uh and the others are safer but they don't uh, protect as much as the other ones so again it's like a controversy and the the thing is uh also it was very interesting because i learned that um one thing is 
the thing that you can read in the journals and in the articles that um, they published in the suits uh, or from the studies at SUS in the United States and other things is to work actually like in the field where you cannot get those vaccines. No, So that's why also it was like a good uh, justification to use this type of vaccine because we cannot get the other one that is um, safer. No. So that that's also I, I think very important about the about the work that I did. <laughs> so what one one story, tell us one story about working with the dogs that you just like that kind of sticks in your memory. Um <laughs> well how they enjoy life and how they um take care of each other and um if if one of them felt that you were closer to them or you were threatening them they they all came to to defend the other one um and despite their semi wild conditions that we have them they they got like pretty used to us and um and and i think that their vocalizations were Impressive, and and I think that's one of the things that I I am going to remember. Um, all the, the the wide variety of vocalizations and the complex communication that that they have between each other. I think that's that's what I um, what I am impressed with. <laughs> yeah, they're yeah they're really amazing. So you went to Namibia, but was for cheetahs originally, wasn't it? And I was the there. Yeah, no, but I was there like maybe two or three months doing my, my data collection. Yes, I, it was not that, that much. It was not that long. And also, um, it, I had the opportunity to work uh, assisting the, the resident vet there with the cheetahs. And then when I went back to Bristol, I transfer all my data, I analyzed it, and I wrote my, my thesis, and then I got the call from um, the executive director um, telling me that they, they were in urgent need of a vet in Somaliland. Uh, there was no, um, no international vet. They had one a local vet, but unfortunately, the work was too much, and also the, the type of care and medical attention uh, was um, was very specific, you know? and um, so also another thing that she told me was that they had an unprecedented um, number of uh, seized um, cheetah cubs. Uh, so it was an an emergency, basically. So I why were why where did these cubs come from? Why were they being seized all of a sudden? What was happening? Um, Spe like specifically, like why all of a sudden that um, large amount of cops? Um, I think it, it was just a matter of like chance because, to be honest, I think they are trafficked in large amounts all the time. But the fact that they just got got that um, uh, that lot that load, no, exactly. So it, it was maybe just a chance, no? Because of course there are a lot of um, of factors. For example, um, what they have uh, told us is that the traffickers, the, the smugglers, uh, they use boats to 
transfer the, the cheetah cubs from Somaliland, from the coast of Somaliland, through the Gulf of Aden and arrive to the Gulf states. And unfortunately, the, the coast guards, they don't even have sometimes gas uh, for their boats. They don't have proper equipment, so they cannot... Um, th- basically, okay, they we cannot... we have to stop and tell everybody who's listening <laughs> what that was. <laughs> that weird little mechanical thing is actually a tiny little primate that comes out at night here. And it's a little galangal. No, no. It was uh, my mobile. <laughs> my ringtone. <laughs> that would be a great ringtone. But, so we might hear them again because it's uh, it's just getting dark here. Because uh, you had to finish all your work here uh, today. Exactly. At Takagama Chimpanzee Sanctuary. So we were finally able to, to tie you down. So we may hear a few more weird things here in the night. But <laughs> anyway, so you were talking about the smugglers. and, and Yes. 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 Um, so basically... Um, the smugglers, of course, have more equipment, more money, and um, the the police of, of Somaliland they they don't have that many equipment or um, basically resources to 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 confiscate the animals. So basically, every confiscation is like a very big triumph. Um, so in that that special case that I was summoned. Um, there was a uh, like twenty. There were twenty cheetah cubs. Wow. Yes, and unfortunately, um, a few died during the transport. Um, we called the the house of the organization safe house. Um, so very few arrived at the safe houses, or at the safe house. At, by then, it was only a safe house, um, and a lot of them had. Um, respiratory diseases. They were with diarrhea as well. How vomiting. big are these cups we're talking about? I mean, are they tiny, tiny little like, kitten size, or are they? They zero? were, they were like three to four months old. Wow, mm-hmm. so very small. But they were, yeah, exactly. They are very, very small, and of course, they had um, chronic uh, and severe malnourishment. Um, severe dehydration and by the time I arrived there uh, it was very funny because I, I didn't even have a chance to unpack I, I knew that there were a lot of sick cubs and I needed to go and check on them and help in in whatever way I could so yeah basically uh, that's how I got to, to Somaliland I have never heard of that place before and then I started learning I, I didn't even arrive with um, um, how do you call these um head scarves? You know, because I didn't even read that that there was a, that it was a Muslim country, <laughs> and that I needed a head scarf. So yeah, I started basically learning about everything. Um, but like as time passed by. So you got there from Bristol. Mm-hmm. Is that right? So when yeah. you were going to school in Bristol, is, mm-hmm. so. I did my masters in Bristol University. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, so you really are a cat and dog vet. Um, no. <laughs> well, yeah, dogs, that's true. That's wild, true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cats. I get it. I get it. Now. <laughs> but wild, wild ones. So, what was the biggest difference um, at that point when when you started working with the, the cheetah cubs? What would you say was the 
biggest difference is starting to deal with them versus what you had, you originally were working on with wild dogs? Was it because they were tiny cubs or was it some other element of working with them? They they were tiny cubs and also um, African wild dogs are very resistant and very strong. Uh, I heard the stories about animals severely wounded and just recovered um, by themselves, basically. And of course, the pack took care of them. Um, and unfortunately, cheetahs are very, very fragile. <laughs> and this is all because um, the genetic diversity that they have has been decreasing as the number of individuals has decreased as well. Uh, so basically, this um, genetic lack of genetic diversity also um, means that the immune system is weak, and all basically like it, it affects like all their their body systems. You know? and they they are fragile in that aspect, uh, and of course the fact that um, they were cubs and that they had been um, through dehydration to malnourishment, it makes them even uh, more fragile. And also another challenge that, that I faced there was that there's a, a disease of actually felines called uh, feline infectious peritonitis, which basically affects uh, domestic cats, but also it has been reported to affect um, wild cats wild felites and unfortunately we got it in in our cheetahs so we not only had to deal with with trying to make the cubs survive because of all the conditions that they suffered from uh, during the the transport uh, but also then trying to help them with this virus that unfortunately does not have um, treatment you just and give them supportive treatment and hope for the best. Uh, and that was a very hard um, hard thing to deal with because we lost many, many cubs uh, due to that disease. And it was heartbreaking. Yeah. Is it a disease that they normally, if they were like a healthy cub, could they, could they resist or they're still going to be subject to it? Some of them... Um, you may say could resist, but mm, I don't think it's because of the, the the malnourishment or the dehydration, but because of the age. Because it has been also uh, recorded that, uh, for example, in Oregon Safari, they had an outbreak of FIP, this disease. And they saw that the, the individuals that survived were older, older individuals. So it, it has to be mainly due to age or related to age. Probably, yes, because the immune system is not that that developed or they don't have that many um, resources no, to, to deal well, with the virus. of little ones, now you're taking care of more little ones. It seems to be <laughs> you're becoming the, the little creature vet. <laughs> I end up being... <laughs> So now you're working babies. here in Sierra Leone at Takagama Chimpanzee Sanctuary. You're the head vet. How long have you been here? Uh, about three months, I think. Mm -hmm. So had you worked with primates, great apes? 
Um, primates, yes. I used to be an exotic pet vet uh, back in Mexico. So I treated um, lemurs, uh, like ringtail lemurs, um, titi monkeys, uh, capuchin monkeys, um, spider monkeys, and um, uh, howler monkeys. Unfortunately, also like illegal pets. <laughs> Um, but not great apes. This is my first uh, experience with great apes. So how has it been in three months? Was it? Did it feel like you were just like? I mean, that, that's got to be different. So different. The so first day different. You walked into the job here. It's got to mm-hmm. be. Yeah, it has been quite um quite an experience. Not only because I I was learning about like the livelihood here and how to adapt to this new place, but also like. It, it was like a crash course, no? <laughs> how to how to deal with the with the logistics here, and of course learning about the species and about each individual because here also like one um very different thing of of dealing with or or being with other species is that they are very much like us, <laughs> so so each one has its own. Um, of course, other species they have their own personalities as well. But here, of course, the the level of intelligence and complexity in it's it's um, impressive. <laughs> I would say impressive, and and sometimes um, it it makes it, the the work even more challenging. I remember that a friend of mine who works in Apex Action Africa. She was telling me, just a piece of advice, be very patient. And I was like, why? And she was like, yeah, you will see, you will see. But if you want to treat them, just be very patient. <laughs> and yeah, they, I mean, I know why, because sometimes if you want to give a medication to them and if it tasted, if, if it tastes bad, then they won't take it. No? And then you are breaking your head trying to figure out how to give the medication to that specific um, animal no? and then you try many many things some some of them you you like you have to be very creative with we, we try banana smoothie we try um, even like human food um, and then yeah also you have to I think I was uh, telling Bale, uh, our executive director, sometimes even you, you have to do like mind tricks with them. You have to play with their minds, like like trick them. Like, oh no, I'm not going to give you anything or I don't care if you don't eat it, no? And then be, um, how do you say, like you have to, uh, I don't know how to say that. <laughs> Be inconsistent, no? To just use the surprise uh, factor, no? That's what I noticed the other night when you were uh, trying to get some of them in and you had one of them named um, Monroe who was being very, Very like a real problem child. And you guys were, I could see your... See the wheels turning in your head as all, as you were trying to figure out, okay, like, how do I trick him into this? How do I trick him into that? He was giving a lot of problems letting the littlest ones come into the, the enclosure for the night. And, Definitely. Um, yeah. I think they keep they keep us in our toes <laughs> <laughs> all the time. Exactly. 
And sometimes I guess it's like, okay, uh, chimp one, human zero, <laughs> or chimp five, human zero. <laughs> yeah, they're super smart. Super, super smart. Well, and with as many chimps as you have over there, it might be more than five. <laughs> yeah, definitely. You could, chimp 2,000. <laughs> chimp 2,000. <laughs> human one. So now you, you began from wild dogs to, to cheetahs to chimpanzees. Is there, is there a, as a bet, is there a, is there a physiological difference in working with those animals? It's not just the mind and, you know, the, the way to approach them because they're, you know, sentient beings and, and you know, using right. their heads. But, but phys- physiologically, I mean, it's like, it seems like it would be very different dealing with with a primate patient versus a cat or, you know. Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. And also because of the specialization um, that they have, like each one of them have. And for example, the, the cheetah is super specialized and has uh, many adaptations for running, for speed. And it has... Uh, Big heart, big nostrils, uh, the claws, no? uh, the special spine, the special uh, or, or the size of the head, etc. And also uh, the chimps. The chimps have, um, even though they are mammals, they, they are more like us. <laughs> and and I think that's what. At some point, it makes it easier for me to work th- with them, even though I have never worked with them because I, I can, like, relate and, of course, read about the anatomy and, and see how they are. And, but definitely, like, even the, the distribution of some of the organs is different because they their locomotion is different. You know, they can stand up in two feet and walk. And um, their, their thorax, for example, for me, it was... Impressive that their thorax is so wide, <laughs> and um, and the uh, just the, the the cranium how how it is. Um, I was uh, studying um, about about their anatomy, about their cranium, and how it is um, uh, like the, the the shape, basically how it is, and definitely is. Um, you, you can find a lot of differences, not not only in the size of the eyes, but but also in the in, in the in the thickness of of the of some of the bones, no? In comparison to, for example, the African wild dogs, no? Or the cheetahs. But yeah, it's it's. So um, when you're doing a health check on a chimpanzee, you find yourself. I mean, is is the approach very different? Is the thinking very different? I mean, are you? Uh, I, I mean, for me, I guess I would think I've got this thing laying there that looks a little bit like me. Mm-hmm. It's shaped a lot like me, mm-hmm. and you know, it's got five fingers, and it's you know, it's like you said, it's cranium and its eyes and everything. And I, I don't know. It, it it seems like I would. I would have a different mental process going on thinking about caring for it than I might. I think that for me, at the beginning, was it was more impressive because exactly it looked it looked more like us, 
and um, and the expression of the eyes it's different it's it's um quite unique it's not like looking to um an african wild or a cheetah or another mammal no even though they they are all mammals uh, i think it makes it makes it more um unique and more i don't know how to say that like maybe a, a deep a deep experience or and, and yeah definitely sometimes sometimes it feels like you are more connected to them and that you can make even more um impact on them because they read you and they are they are processing some they, all the time they and they are watching you all the time and, and and you can see the expressions in their faces no and, and and you can relate to those expressions no so if you are causing them pain you you are for sure like getting that information from from your patient no? so i think it, it would be maybe a little bit more like a human doctor probably no or a pediatrician no? and 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 for me that sometimes we we joke as as vets and we say no we don't like people and that's why we we end up working with animals no and and sometimes also um like this this feeling to be causing like mm, evident pain or 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 a deep impact in in your patient is um it's even frightening sometimes mm-hmm. so speaking of those expressions Have you thought about the fact that, um, I mean, you normally would wear uh, a mask and gloves and things when you're working, you know, doing a health checkup or something like that. But mm-hmm. because the last couple of years, because of COVID, uh, now all of us are walking around, you know, most of the time with masks. And chimps are so expressive in the face and they mm-hmm. read the face. And um, especially around the mouth, they're very attuned to, you know, information around around that part of the face and have you i mean i because i saw you today um you were uh, there's a, a very famous woman here called mama p who takes care of the tiny infants she's mm-hmm. she's been doing it for for many 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 years right and but today was mama p's day off and so you were mm-hmm. taking care of the two tiniest little ones that are here they're mm-hmm. um it's Camila and Charlie. Camila and Charlie. And how old are they? Um, they're about eight months old. Each. Each. They're mm-hmm. both funny. Mm-hmm. And they're so tiny. I mean, they're like, um, they're, they're almost like little doll creatures. Yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They, look like, they actually look about the size of the stuff Bruno. Uh, in the shop. In the shop. Yeah, that's true. Here. Um, and, and they're just, I, I noticed, so I was watching you through the passageway you were out there this afternoon um, giving them some outdoor time and some sun and um, they're just they're so dependent on you that person taking care of them I mean they didn't venture very far mm-hmm. I think you know one of them would venture about two or three feet away from you and then scurry back so mm-hmm. they don't get too very far so that must be a very different experience as a vet to work with something that's also so dependent on you like that and as so many of these little ones are mm-hmm. yeah definitely um i i can tell you that i have um lots of experience uh hand rearing i have worked in um in uh, massachusetts in 
Cape Wildlife Center, which is a wildlife rehab center. So we got tons of babies, raccoons, and uh, of course, a lot of birds, um, um, fishers, and um, other mammals. Uh, and I was uh, hand-rearing also uh, very, very tiny cheetah cubs, and I have worked with um, other small mammals, hand-rearing them. And yes, definitely uh, working with, uh, with baby chimps is a totally different experience because you, you actually feel, like, like, as you say, how dependent, but also like, um, not, not physiologically because you have to give them the, the milk no, but but also psychologically, you know, they need this connection and this reassuring, uh, constant reassuring, you know, and it it feels, of course, that we have uh, a huge responsibility, but also, um, unfortunately, you 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 also have to leave them and, and go back to your activities, so you also feel like. The, the, that you are not giving them what what they need, you know, in reality, because of course in the nature they would have their moms twenty four seven, no, not just a couple of hours a day, no. So we don't know how how much impact we are generating in in those babies, you no, know, uh, for the fact that we or, or because we cannot be with them all the time. Yeah, I was wondering about that because, I mean, you take care of their physical needs and you oversee their nutritional needs, but there's also their psychological needs. Mm-hmm. And it's got to be incredibly demanding because it, it's you don't have one person for every chimp out exactly. there. I mean, you've got, you know, like we said, there's 25 now in the nursery and there's Camila and Charlie and then there's, what, three or four others in quarantine? Three, mm-hmm. So, so just people, so people know the quarantine. Pro- the reason we're calling it quarantine is mm-hmm. there's a process when a new one comes in. Maybe you could walk us through it real briefly. Exactly. Yes, as you said. Um, so basically, whenever we receive a, a new confiscated chimp, we um, monitor and observe him uh, in a separate um, enclosure and, and separate area because it can be carrying some diseases that we are not aware of and that we don't want uh, for him or her to transmit to the other chimps. So, uh, and after this seven-day period, then we have to sedate him or her and uh, withdraw some blood and do some samples and, and testing and just to see how how clean <laughs> Just to say it like this, you know, how clean the, the chimp is. Is it disease or is it parasites that usually are the biggest problem when you get a new one? Parasites. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not only internal, but also external, like lice or meats. Um, and then after that, basically, we keep them during a whole period of 90 days. And they have to go under a monthly health check. Uh, and during those monthly health checks, um, they receive vaccinations as well uh, for tetanus and polio. Uh, it depends on each sanctuary and on the diseases that are around. So each sanctuary has its own schedule, vaccination schedule. And um, we also one of one of the biggest threats, of course, is tuberculosis because it's not only at a very um, 
severe disease and it can be even mortal, but also they can transmit that disease to us uh, and that um, that makes it even more um, like even a more serious disease no? and, and, and a situation that we have to really um, look for. So we basically do one test at, at the first month and then in the second month we do a chest x-ray and then in the third month we repeat the first test uh, which is uh, a skin test basically and um, we inject some substance and if there's a reaction uh, you are going to see an increase of, of the volume in the site that you injected that substance and then that that, that is like a an alarm <laughs> and then you have to do more testing just to make sure that it is actually tuberculosis so you're dealing like with what would happen with, with, with humans. that's more tested and exactly. it has to be the, the site where it's injected has to be retested exactly so mm -hmm. is polio you mentioned polio is is uh, is polio a is it um, specific to the chimps or is it the same polio that we would be contracting it would be the same the same so polio. it's also a zoonotic Mm -hmm. yeah. Actually, there are a lot of zoonotic diseases, and they, we call them zoonotic, as, as you were correctly mentioning it, to the diseases that are transmitted from uh, animals to humans. But, so you have but, to be on the, I mean, with all, all the workers here and everything, that exactly. becomes a big concern. It's not just the chimps, exactly. you know, a hundred, over 100 chimps now that are But here. also something very interesting is that there's, Diseases called anthroposonosis, which are diseases that we humans can transmit to the animals. No? And in this case, uh, for example, Dr. Alejandra Romero, uh, the former uh, resident vet from uh, this sanctuary, um, she diagnosed uh, a couple of cases uh, of uh, treponomiosis, which is um, a bacteria that can affect uh, humans as well, and it's usually seen in humans. And um, so we don't know what was first, you know, if humans transmitted to the chimp or if the chimp just was carrying it. And, and, and if it's the case, then the people in the village have to be very careful, you know, because then they can contract uh, diseases from the wildlife. Yeah, I never even, I, I guess I hadn't quite thought about it, the fact that, because I mean, you're confiscating these chimps or, or, you know, rescuing these chimps from people's homes and villages and things, and they could pick up diseases from humans in the, that context mm -hmm, and then mm -hmm. bring them here. And then right. they, if you're not careful, they could then turn around and spread them here. So it's like exactly. all those steps along the way that you have to watch out for. Yeah, so and I think, the, sorry. No, no, go ahead. No, I think one of the challenges of, of working with, with primates is also that you have to be even more careful uh, with the biosecurity because as you were saying, you know, it, there are much more diseases that we can share with each other. Right. Yeah. But, I mean, what's what's been your biggest, in the three months that you've been here and working with the chefs, what would you say is the, the one thing that's surprised you most? That like really you you kind of you really hadn't even thought about that. Is it a behavioral thing or a disease thing or? Anything? I think a behavioral thing. Um, I think one of the things that are that I am most impacted uh, with is that the love that they can give you and the the affection that that they can um, 
hold to you. Um, I think that 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 is more much more evident um, in in them than than in other species for me. Um, and uh, for example, it's like a, a like a silly um, <laughs> anecdote, but um, I was um, bonding with with one of these um, babies, chimps called Ferenke. And then all of a sudden she beat me. But then Rocco, one uh, a male infant, he defended me. So he he hit Ferenke and he immediately went to see if I was okay. Uh, and he grabbed my finger, the finger that, that had been beaten. And he was like caressing the finger and just... It, I don't know. It was so. Um, it, it created a, a deep impact <laughs> in me. It was like, oh my god, <laughs> he he really likes me and, and cares for me. You know? <laughs> so and how old is he? He's like five point uh, five and a half years. Oh, yeah. so he's still quite small. Mm-hmm. Wow. And and then you you become part of their troop, basically. <laughs> wow. Part of their group. My conversation the other evening with Karina was interrupted before I could ask her a couple final questions. So I caught up with her the next morning and asked her, Last evening we were talking about your vet care work, but I've seen you doing so much more with folks around here. Can you talk a little bit about the other challenges that you have? Um, yes, actually that's a very important part of, of the job and, and I'm happy that you asked about it. Uh, because, yes, as you say, there's a lot more like behind the scenes no? that, that the vet does in this part of uh, or in these type of jobs. Uh, for example, we are in charge of uh, the list of shopping supplies. Uh, we are in charge of managing, um, for example, here, the care staff. Um, also, we have the responsibility sometimes of teaching, uh, teaching them uh, some basic skills that we're uh, we're going to be using for the animals and even for them. Um, some capacity building, uh, frequent capacity building. In fact, it's it's better for them and for us because then that makes things easier. The the all the knowledge is fresh. And we, for example, we do some blowpipe training so they know how to use it and in case we need it then they already know that mm. uh, how to prepare darts and how to monitor um, vitals uh, in the gyms uh, how to check if, if a chimp is healthy or if it's uh, sick and the swellings the sexual swellings how to uh, classify it so they can report that to us it's important also to to monitor the the females and um, like in that aspect, uh, I think we we are kind of teachers as well. Uh, we may get also vet students or even like for example in Somaliland, I got local vet students here in Sierra Leone. Unfortunately, there is no local vet school, but we can get local vets and and we are also in charge of the training and of how to work with wildlife because sometimes they are only uh, trained or uh, they, they only know how to deal with cattle or livestock in general. And also, for example, uh, we are 
I think the the most uh, close uh, medical person sometimes. So we have to be the nurse of the care staff, and we have to um, cure or to heal or to treat wounds, minor wounds, to give like um, first aid treatment, and also, for example, uh, it's uh, it's important that because of the of the biosecurity protocols that we have established in in this sanctuary, for example. Every every new staff member that uh, arrives, we we have to to test uh, that person in order to be able to know if that person is able to work with us because of the proximity that we have with the great apes. And if a person has, for example, HIV or herpes virus, then sometimes we we are not able to to be working with that person. Um, here with the, with the chimp, you know? so this this person could be a risk. You know? So we have to do like a screening for the care staff, and uh, we are the ones that um, take the samples and do the testing for that. And also, as um, many people will know, but many others don't, <laughs> and we are responsible for the animal health, but also uh, if the animals are not healthy, the the care staff will not be healthy. So um, sometimes when we detect uh, parasites in our chimps, we also deworm the care staff uh, in order to, to prevent uh, further diseases and also in, in order to break that cycle because sometimes if we deworm the chimps, but if we don't deworm the care staff, then the care staff continues carrying the parasites and then the, the personnel can infect the chimps. No? So it's also important to to look at the big picture and to um, always keep in mind the, the human health. And as a young female vet from Mexico, there must have been some amazing living and gender challenges of working in Africa. What's that been like? And what advice would you give to young girls dreaming of being an African wildlife vet like you? So, like, especially in Africa, I, I think uh, depends on, on the on the part of Africa you, where you are. Uh, like, for example, in South Africa, in Cape Town or in certain uh, natural reserves or parks, and you, you can encounter a lot of um, like Western culture and a lot of international stuff, and maybe you won't notice that, that, um, that difference. Um, if you are, for example, in um, Namibia also, what, what I uh, experienced is that it was also like a lot of uh, Western culture and, and I didn't experience any, uh, any sexism. But when I was in Somaliland, for example, um, the, the culture is Muslim. Um, if, yeah, Muslim. <laughs> and um, of course, they, they had like a lot of issues with, with um, like equality you know as, as a woman also you have to cover all your body your uh your hair and uh, i was working in or near the city near the capital which, which is hargeza and in that region you can find a lot more tolerant people towards um like a human uh, a female person that it's from abroad and um, that it's not in or wearing the same dress code, no? 
Um, but uh, if you want to go to the provinces, people are less tolerant and it's even more dangerous for you to go there and to be there alone. Usually, I was not al allowed to be there. And um, here, for example, in Sierra Leone, you can find more tolerance as well. Uh, we can find more international people uh, in Freetown. But of course, the local people have this um, background no, of, of being more um, male-dominant uh, in, in their cultures. So I think... Um, I think you have to be very tolerant and very patient uh, to be to, to have a, a lot of resilience, but also don't forget who you are. Uh, don't let other people to push you or, or step on you. And sometimes what I have found is that, um, for example, I think that I am not a very extroverted people or person. Um, but but sometimes if you see that that. I don't know, the animals you love are being mistreated or something that you feel that it's, or that you know it's not right, it's happening, then you you re, you reveal a, a part of you yet that you didn't know it was there. And then you can um, put up to that situation and um, like people notice you and people understand you and people start respecting you. And also usually... The, there's a lot of people around you that that will be helping you that um, usually it's like the, the same staff or the, the executive directors and that you can ask for for help and support but indeed it's not easy and i think you just need to to be very passionate and remember why why you are here and um, and just fight for it every day <laughs>or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any questions for us here at Talking Apes or ideas about future podcasts or other countries that we could visit, you can always email us at media at globio.org. I'd like to thank Talking Apes producer Meg Stark for all of her work here in Sierra Leone pulling together our podcast. It's a bit of a challenge here in the bush. And finally, I'd like to thank you. Talking Apes podcasts are made possible by listeners like you. So please consider supporting Talking Apes with your tax-deductible donation at globio.org. I'm Jerry Ellis from Sierra Leone, and thanks for listening to Talking Apes.